Thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 40. If, if you've got a pew Bible, it's page 1,535. If you have a Memorial Church app, you can find it under Sermon Notes. When I was asked to uh, speak about marriage, um, I uh, talked to a number of my married friends and asked, like, what would be some, like, a really helpful topic, maybe like one or two to, to cover if I'm going to talk about marriage. And, and if I heard back from half a dozen people, I probably got three dozen responses. It's like, so Keith, talk about conflict, talk about communication, talk about forgiveness, talk about patience, talk about how we see ourselves versus how we see our spouse. And I decided not to give you 30 sermons this morning, Um, but I found in the scripture something that actually addresses all of these and more, Um, something that Jesus says that actually touches them all, something that that actually helps us better understand all of God's instructions to us. That's what we're going to look at this morning. It's in Matthew chapter uh, 22, beginning in verse 36, when a, a teacher of the God's law asks Jesus this question, teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I still remember the day I heard the words, I don't love you anymore. And I haven't loved you for years. Uh, There were words spoken by one dear friend of mine to another as I was sitting in their living room. The husband sitting on one side of me. The the wife on the other. It's like a visual picture for for what their marriage had become. Over over the years, many of their their short-term problems had just been pushed off and and ignored until they became long-term problems. The sense of oneness that they longed for seemed to be lacking in their marriage, except for what one of them described as their co-parenting, a term seldom used of couples that are still together, that are still married. In the midst of that came an argument over love. What, what, what does it actually mean to love another person? As I heard them arguing about how you actually love a person and how you don't, I thought, I wish I could just switch places with Jesus. Like, if he could just come in here and and speak to them, I think we'd all be better off. But but I wouldn't have to guess what Jesus would say on this subject. So this morning as we look at this passage, I just want us to consider three things. What does it mean to love the way Jesus is talking about here? Why is that so hard and and how can we actually do this? First, what's it mean to to love the way Jesus is teaching? Uh, If you look in verse 37... Jesus starts by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, and he calls it the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our, our everything. But, but he says after that command, there's none greater than Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor as yourself. The words translated there, your, your neighbor in the original language, mean quite literally your, your near one. And while this command applies to actually all people in all relationships, whether romantic relationships or professional relationships, your, your next-door neighbor or someone that you've just met for the first time, nowhere is this more relevant or challenging than in the context of marriage because it doesn't get any nearer than a husband or a wife. 
which means if we're married, the primary one that we're called to love in this way is, is our spouse. But, but whether we're married or not, it's important to hear what Jesus is actually saying here and, and to know what he's not saying. You see, today in our modern self-help culture, we often hear these words as, as if Jesus is saying, we really need to love ourselves first before we can love anybody else. We tend to hear love as, as primarily about a feeling, and we think of loving ourselves as something we actually need to learn. But, but Jesus is telling us that, that we already know how to do that. He assumes that we know how to love ourselves. In fact, when these same uh, commandments come up in, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, the first question Jesus hears is not, how do I love myself, but, but, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer uh, by telling a story about three people that uh, pass by somebody, they draw near to somebody who's been robbed, beaten, and and has been left for dead. Somebody who has obvious need and the only one that's actually portrayed as having loved him is, is one that we call the Good Samaritan, the only one who sees them like they would see themselves, who responds to their needs as if those needs were their own needs, tending to his wounds, taking him to a safe place so that he can rest and and heal. And, and in telling this story, Jesus shows us that loving isn't primarily about how we feel, but actually it's primarily about what we do. And the fact that the person Jesus is talking to doesn't ask him, how do I love myself, shows that he already knows how, but I want to tell you, so do we. This kind of struck me when I was in, in college and I was sitting there realizing, you know what, when I'm hungry, I look for something to eat and then I eat it. Okay. Well, when I'm thirsty... Well, I always know I'm thirsty, and I, and I try to find something to drink, and I, and I drink it. If I have an itch in the middle of my back, I will contort myself like a yoga instructor until I can scratch that baby. Because we're always aware of our own needs, and we're constantly seeking to get those needs met. It's not something that we have to learn. We know it from birth. In fact, some of you have newborns. You know, and we're probably reminded a couple times last night, probably 2 a.m., 4 a.m., and 6 a.m., um, that, that we're born into this world longing to get our needs met, and we'll do whatever we can to get our needs met. You see, we're wired to to live this way. In the biblical sense, we already know how to love ourselves. Jesus says that's the starting point. Start with what you already know and apply that to others to respond to the reality of their needs the way that you do the reality of, of your own needs. And when Jesus goes on in verse 40, when he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, He's saying that all of their biblical instructions about marriage and about the rest of our life are simply uh, an elaboration on Jesus' commandment uh, to love. It just gives us the specifics of what it looks like and what it sounds like. And yet simply knowing that, that there's a call to love another's uh, needs, uh, love another through our needs, uh, through their needs, um, isn't something that we only do through our actions. It's actually something we're commanded to do through our words. And that's what we heard in the scripture reading. And In Ephesians 4.29, it says what we already heard. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. If we read that passage and we think Paul's main point is, is, well, avoid profanity, avoid vulgar or unwholesome language, we actually miss the point at the end of the verse. Building others up according to their needs. See, Paul is actually saying that there are legitimate needs that each of us have that can actually be met with someone's words, that actually build somebody up when they're met. Not physical needs, but what you might call emotional needs or, or relational needs or, or intimacy needs. 
We know it's right to call them needs because the Bible just called them needs. You see, just like scriptures command us to meet another's physical needs, throughout the scriptures, it commands us to meet others' relational needs and in doing so, actually loving one another. You can look in the New Testament and 50 times you'll find this phrase, some form of love one another, to meet others' needs for things like comfort and, and acceptance and encouragement. Commands like comfort one another. 2 Corinthians 1.4, forgive one another, Ephesians 4.32, honor one another, Romans 12.10, bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2, accept one another, Romans 15.7, encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. See, God commands us to meet these needs in others because just like our physical needs, we just don't function properly when they're not met. Just like we don't do well without sleep or without food or without water, the same adverse effects that we experience physically also happen relationally and emotionally if our our relational needs go unmet and sometimes even have physical consequences. Uh, Years ago, I I remember learning about an orphanage uh, from decades ago where uh, some of the infants that were born there were being held, but others were not. In other words, some had their needs for attention and affection Uh, And comfort met while others simply did not. And despite the fact that all the orphans in that orphanage had all of their physical needs met, the mortality rate of those who weren't held skyrocketed. Since then, studies have shown that lack of things like attention and affection uh, have been linked to a failure to thrive not only in infancy but even later on in a person's life because we don't outgrow the reality of our needs. It just... Like showing them that, hey, these relational needs are legit. That actually isn't the end game itself because if you look at other translations of, of Ephesians 4.29, where here in NIV it talks about uh, meeting others' you know, needs according to their needs. In other translations it says, as fits the occasion. Or in another translation, according to the need of the moment. And, and I have a feeling that we already know what it looks like for there to be a physical need of the moment. In fact, we actually have a picture of that. Well, I guess just on this screen today. I think we have a picture of that up there. Uh, Do you have a picture up there? There we go. Um, That's a man standing in the rain. Can't really tell from a distance. So so if we were to try to meet his needs, I mean, hunger is a legitimate need. So in the next picture, we're going to try meeting one of his needs. Here we go. Let's put that next picture up there. All right. Is that going to hit the spot? So, I mean, you give him a sandwich because he's standing in the rain. You're like, hey, this is a legitimate need. So let's see how well he looks in the next picture. Yeah, still the same. (laughs) So they're saying, I mean, are you going to look at this guy and say, come on, man, are my sandwiches not good enough for you? I mean, don't you see that I care? Okay, there's something else you could give him. Let's, let's show the other picture. Yeah, that might actually help a little bit more. Thank you. Uh, you see, we already know instinctively some of these things and, and when it comes to physical needs, but we can also make the sandwich mistake when it comes to people's relational needs. We're trying to meet a legitimate need, but one that may not be a very high priority at the moment or, or may not actually be a very high priority for that, that person at all. On the other hand, if we're actually willingly giving and, and receiving, giving to meet others' relational needs, and they're doing the same to us, that's when intimacy happens in relationship. That's when love is experienced. And when we actively love one another this way, that's when feelings and emotions of love actually follow the things that actually make actions and words of love a whole lot easier to give. We scratch where they itch. They scratch where we itch. Everything seems fine in the world. And yet when we aren't loving each other well, when we miss the mark, it actually has a way of drowning out every other attempt 
to communicate our love to them. And marriage becomes frustrating because, if we're honest, loving others poorly is a whole lot easier than loving others well. Why is that so hard? Why don't we love simply the way that we ought to? Well, first, some of us simply assume that everyone is just like us, and so we never actually learn what loving them well looks like. Um, Some of you have probably heard the parable, uh, the African parable of the monkey and the fish. If you haven't, here's the parable of the monkey and the fish. A story is told about a monkey and a fish. It seems a typhoon had temporarily stranded a monkey on an island. In a secure, protected place and waiting for the raging waters to recede, he spotted a fish swimming against the current. It seemed obvious to the monkey that the fish was struggling and and in need of assistance. Being of kind heart, the monkey resolved to help the fish. A tree precariously dangled over the very spot where the fish was struggling. At considerable risk to himself, the monkey moved far out on limb, reached down, and snatched the fish from the threatening waters. Immediately scurrying back to the safety of his shelter, he carefully laid the fish on dry ground. For a few moments, the fish showed excitement as it danced around, but soon settled into what the monkey interpreted as a peaceful rest. Joy and satisfaction swelled inside the monkey. He had helped another creature, and he had done so successfully. Or maybe not. You see, like the monkey, we instinctively treat others as if what we'd want are the same things that they would want, but sometimes they're not. In the book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller share their own story of discovering what loving the other well looks like by first learning what it does not look like. Um, Kathy grew up in a home where her mother had a stroke uh, when she was younger, and, and as a result, her father actually stepped in to help with a lot of the household chores in ways that were pretty untypical for parents in that generation. As a result, Kathy grew up hearing her mom saying this, This is how my husband loves me. He helps with the chores and the children, the dishes and the diapers. For Kathy, loving well looked like support. Galatians 6.2, bearing one another's burdens, lending to help a hand so that others don't have to do it all themselves. Tim's family, on the other hand, in their family, loving well looked like respect. It's the way that you show that you loved another person was by not offering to help with dishes or diapers because that communicated you didn't trust the person to do the job themselves. Doing that would actually be received as disrespect. So guess how Kathy and her family felt when Tim came on over for dinner at the parents' home. And when dinner was done, he just left his dirty dishes on the table, stood up, and walked out of the kitchen. Now imagine how surprised Tim was when they brought their firstborn baby home and and it was time to to change a dirty diaper and, and Tim brings the baby to Kathy. And Kathy looks at him weird. And says, you do it. And he's like, what? Well, you know what they say in my family. Finders keepers. You see, what communicates love in one person and their family can be the opposite of what communicates it for another. And the point is, is not simply to give somebody what, what I would want, but, but to respond to the reality of their needs as if those were my, my own needs. And there's a lot of reasons why some needs become a priority over others. One is like what Tim and Kathy's story showed us. The, the value of certain things were reinforced so much in our younger years that as we grow up, we begin to equate those very things like, like respect or support with love itself to the point that we may not even function well without those things. 
Yet sometimes that value is learned not because we receive so much of something, but because we actually receive the very opposite. We receive so little. Maybe our need for something like attention or comfort or, or approval was so frequently unmet that it's actually created like this vacuum in us that just can't seem to get enough of that thing from others. I remember meeting a man in, in his 30s who identified his own high need for approval in, in every relationship, including that with his fiancée, and and realized that it was still driven by the reality that never quite felt he got approval from his father growing up, decades later, still feeling that longing. Sometimes those the, the deep needs that we have are really formed by significant experiences, different uh, hurts that we've experienced. Maybe it was a significant experience of rejection that we felt over and over and over again, or maybe one significant experience of rejection from somebody that we loved so much that we expected so much the opposite of what they actually gave us. The result can simply be maybe our perfectionism. Maybe that's our coping mechanism. We we work hard at at our work. We work hard at relationships. We, We become perfectionists. We try to overcompensate, secure from ourselves the things that we so desperately long in a way that that's tiring, in a way that we feel we can never rest unless we give our flawless performance for others. You see, just as our unique story shapes our needs... Unique stories of others also shape their needs. You could say that every marriage that someone enters into is actually a cross-cultural marriage. We can't, we can't simply assume that the things that, that we would receive as love are the same things that they would receive as love. And, and so the best marriage advice I ever heard on this is become a student of your wife. Become a student of your husband. Learn what makes them tick. Learn their story. Uh, Learn how that story has shaped them for better and for worse. And in the process, you're going to start getting clues of what their deepest relational and intimacy needs are and and what it actually looks like and sounds like to meet them, to meet them well, and what it tends to look like when they're not being met, what the symptoms are of that happening. Maybe another reason why we don't love as we ought to is that we simply view our relational needs in a way that's, that's skewed. And that can happen in three different ways. One is through our own selfishness. In other words, we we exalt our own needs above that of anybody else. We idolize them. We want a good thing, but we want it in a a really bad way. So we only seek having our needs met rather than seeking to meet others' needs. Or maybe we only seek to meet someone else's needs when we realize they can do the same for us in return. In the words of David Pallison, we can find ourselves relying on improper ways to meet a legitimate need need and resort to relationally, not simply receiving, but taking from others. You see, if I think someone's ignoring me, I might might act out in ways that are totally inappropriate, but the ways that I've learned actually force people to pay attention to me. They couldn't ignore me if they try. Maybe if I want respect, but don't think I'm going to get it from another naturally, I try to put on a mask so that they respect the mask, but they still never see me. Or maybe I take a counterfeit of respect, something like fear, and I take that from them instead. Maybe for some of us our problem isn't our own selfishness. It's maybe the opposite. Maybe it's our own self-reliance. Simply, instead of exalting our relational needs, we actually deny the reality that we have any needs that we can't meet on our own. And because of that, We start to see others the same way. We don't recognize relational needs in them or any needs in them because we don't recognize those things in ourselves. And as a result, we hardly ever love others well and we don't even notice if they're trying to love us well. Some of us, though, maybe we do recognize our needs. 
and we hate them. We don't exalt them. We, we condemn them. Our problem is self-condemnation. We condemn the reality of our needs. We recognize our neediness. We, we see that in ourselves, but we don't give ourselves permission to actually want those needs met. In other words, we can't stand the fact that we have needs that others can meet because we feel if we were actually better, if we were stronger, if we were more mature, we wouldn't think we'd have any needs at all. Because we hate our needs, or rather because we're ashamed of our needs, we don't let others see our needs, which means we don't let others meet our needs, which means we don't let others love us. Maybe the biggest reason we don't love the way we ought to is actually our unhealed emotional wounding that we carry with us from maybe years in the past. Often it's born from repeated relational wounds or sometimes that that one significant wound from the other person we expected more from. But maybe years later, we see these wounds still affecting us because we start interpreting others' behavior and their actions and their words in light of our wounds. Not in light of their love, but in light of our hurts. As a result, it tends to magnify the effects of people's words and actions towards us, even the ones meant for good, almost always interpreting people's actions negatively because that's what we're so used to experiencing. I think Doug Mendes this last week put it best when he said it can take a thousand pounds of praise to build up what can be torn down with a single ounce of criticism, especially if those words of criticism echo what so many other hurtful voices from the past have already said. So the coping mechanisms that we learn in the wake of all of these hurts Really, there are attempts to receive love. There are attempts to protect ourselves from being hurt more, but in the end, they only isolate us. They only get in the way of us being able to love and and be loved well. Jesus knows that. This doesn't surprise him. He, He knows your wounds. Scripture says he weeps with you in the midst of those. He knows your relational needs, but just like any spouse, he knows better than anyone else also your weaknesses knows your sins, knows your failings more than anybody else, and how he responds to those dual realities in your life is actually what teaches us how to love others well. How does Jesus actually teach us to love? How, does, how is it actually possible? How can we do this? Well, may, you can look at the life of Jesus, and you can say, well, he has plenty of examples in his life of how to love well, but Jesus knew you needed more than an example. He knew that you actually needed an experience of his love. That's why the God who calls us, calls you to love your spouse as yourself in, in Matthew twenty two thirty nine, two verses earlier says this. He invites you into an all-out love affair with himself, to love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to experience that reciprocally, to receive him in that love as, as your true husband. In other words, the one who knows you better than yourself, who knows you for better and for worse and yet still embraces you fully and unconditionally. The way that you know that you've actually received that type of love is is actually shown in in the Gospel of Luke in in chapter 7, in Jesus' interaction with two very different people. In Luke 7, verse 36, it says this. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's home, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. 
She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus, saw him do this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him, what kind of woman she is, that, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, and then concludes by saying to her, go in peace. Two people, Simon and the woman at Jesus' feet, both of them knew the types of things that Jesus had said. Both of them had seen the types of things that Jesus had done. And if Jesus was simply an example to follow or or simply a good teacher, if that was all that he brought, that's all that we would need to be able to love well. But Their very different responses showed us that Simon had been missing something, an experience of Jesus' love. You see, while Simon withheld the most basic acts of love and hospitality, the woman went above and beyond to show her love. Why? Because Simon barely knew his own deeper need for forgiveness. But the woman did. In fact, it was a reality she couldn't deny if she tried. But now as Jesus comes to her right at the point of her deepest need, and she finds her need most deeply met. This experience of Christ's love for her couldn't help but overflow into her love for others. Who loves well? Not the one who denies their needs, not the one who uh, exalts their needs, not the one who hates the reality of their neediness, but the one who owns the reality of their needs and looks to Jesus as the one who can ultimately meet that deepest need. You see, knowing Jesus knows your sinful deeds, just like that woman, and moves towards your needs instead, your need for love, your need for acceptance, your need for forgiveness, your need for comfort, your need for peace. So it not only shows you how to love others well, that's what actually enables you. That's what actually empowers you to love others well. You see, Jesus shows you his love by meeting your needs so that you in turn can actually do that for another. It's a pattern we see in the one another commandments in Ephesians 4.32 where it says, Be forgiving one another. How? Well, as God in Christ forgave you. Romans 5.7, Accept one another then. How? Well, just as Christ accepted you. It's the same kind of love we see in Luke 19 when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, let me tell you, uh, Zacchaeus was persona non grata. Uh, he was the most notorious guy in, in the town that he lived in. He was a tax collector, which meant he sold his soul to the Romans so that he could rob you and then take the surplus taxes you didn't really owe and line his own pockets with them. A tax collector was a type of job that would cost you all sorts of friendships, but it was also the perfect job for somebody who had no friends to lose. 
somebody already rejected by everyone that they know. Over the years, his deeds would have pushed others away, left and right. The reality of his needs would still remain. When Jesus came walking through and the crowds formed, nobody was going to get out of Zacchaeus' way so that he can get a view. And so he actually, in something that would have been very shameful in those days, he climbed a tree to get a better look. And what he saw in Jesus' response was what nobody would have expected. You see, in a culture where the greater your house guest, the greater your own honor, Jesus said before all the others to Zacchaeus, I'm going to stay at, at your house today. I'm going to bring my honor to your house to cover your shame. See, Jesus moved past his sinful needs, the things that pushed everyone else away, to the deeper longing, to his deeper needs. Not just his spiritual needs, but his relational needs as, as well. And as that seed of love was actually sown in Zacchaeus' life, it began to bear fruit of love towards others. Greed started to give way to generosity. A life of taking began to be replaced by actually a life of, of giving to others. It's a picture of what happens when Jesus' love comes into your life. Because he too sees your sinful deeds. He sees my sinful deeds. But he also sees beyond them to your deeper needs. He sees the reality of your guilt, but he sees beyond it to your need for acceptance and offers the forgiveness that you so desperately need that only he could purchase by what he did on the cross. He sees beyond your your fearful hearts to your need for peace and your longing for security and, and says as your true husband, as your true husband, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He sees beyond your shame to the need to have somebody who could cover your shame, bestowing his honor on you by placing his name upon you, by placing his ring on your finger, by calling you his own, by calling you his beloved. He doesn't just do it because it comes easier, because it comes cheap. Because let me tell you, it cost Jesus something to identify with the woman weeping at his feet. It cost Jesus something to come into the home of a despised man named Zacchaeus. It costs something to love people well. And yet seeing your deeds, Jesus also saw your needs. In the process, he very well could have simply looked away, looked at what it would cost him on the cross, and simply decided, I'm just going to cut my losses with this relationship. They're not worth it. I'm just going to walk away. But instead of moving against you or instead of moving away from you, he moved towards you. He moved towards the cross, towards what would be most costly from him to meet a need in you that you could have never met for yourself, to draw near to you so that you could draw near to him because he knew that only that would actually change your heart. Only that would actually enable you to love another. As many of you can testify in this room, the way that Jesus shows us his love today, most profoundly, most often, most significantly, is actually through his body. What he calls his church, the very people you see sitting around you. There are people in this room who have known Jesus' love in a time when they needed to know it the most because they had a bill that they couldn't pay, a medicine that they needed, until another member of this church stepped aside and helped them meet a need they could not meet themselves. And in that, they actually saw God's love for them. There are people in this room who struggled to believe that somebody could actually know them warts and all and actually love them, that God could ever actually honor, offer something like grace until they saw one of you show them grace in the midst of their failure. And in that, saw God's love for them. What this means is that if you're not in community, you're actually missing out 
You're separated from the greatest resource that God gives you so that you can actually experience his love so that you can in turn love your spouse well. And without that, you're likely placing a greater expectation on your spouse than they can actually bear, which means it's, it's going to hurt you even more when they let you down because we all let each other down in various ways. Well, at the same time, they feel crushed by the weight of that burden because let me tell you, no one can bear that burden by themselves. But there is one spouse who can bear that burden. He calls you his bride. His name is Jesus. He's in the business of transforming lives, of transforming relationships, of transforming marriages. Greg Johnson shared a story with me this past week about a a pastor that he met in Ukraine when he was teaching at a seminary there. The pastor had just taken two classes, one on the doctrines of grace, uh, where he learned about how much more damaged and sinful he was than, than he ever realized, but at the same time, seeing the depth of his needs, saw the depth of God's love to do for him what he could never do for himself to show him his, his love and, and his grace. Second class included a discussion on, on God's design for marriage and how that was a relationship designed to repeat that love and grace between a husband and a wife. And so on the last day of the class, this, this pastor asked if he could stand up and, and share something with the class. As Greg mentioned, this was a... He's a pretty rough-looking guy. He was a full-time coal miner. Uh, He only pastored on the evenings and weekends when he was available. And he was a really muscular guy, too. I mean, just picture the ultimate man's man. Yeah, that's this guy. And so probably to everyone's surprise, as he stood up, he began to weep. There were tears of joy. He said that he and his wife had suffered from strife for so many years In the midst of it, he'd always thought that that she was the problem, that she was unwilling to change, that really she was just impossible to live with. But as he sat in the class and and started to see what Jesus wants from a marriage, as he he looked at at it in light of the grace that he had been shown and the love that he had been shown in Christ, he told the entire class that God had been showing him something. God showed him that actually he had not loved his wife, not the way Christ had loved him. So that he had gone home and he told his wife that he was the one who needed to change. Because he had not loved her. Because he had not treated her needs the way that he now sees Jesus treats his needs. He said, I asked my my dear wife to please forgive me for hurting her over and over again. For not encouraging her. For trying to control her. For criticizing her. for, For tearing her down. For not opening up to her. For not cherishing her. It said so many evil things, he said. I I thought that she was the problem, but actually it was I who had not loved her. Then he told the class, and I am honored to say to you, my wife has chosen to forgive me. She says that she had never thought that she would hear me humble myself and ask her to forgive. Now she even asks me to forgive her for her failures. We've got a lot to work to do in in our marriage, but I believe Jesus has entered our home and has become actually our family's savior. I thought God would change her, but but God decided to change me, and it's much better this way. I believe I actually know this Jesus now, and it's a miracle. Friends, that's what Jesus does when his love invades your life, when his love for you becomes the center of, of your marriage, in spite of the fact 
that you and I are more sinful and flawed than you could ever dare imagine. Jesus draws near to show you that you are also more loved and accepted than you can ever dare hope. And in doing so, he draws near to you to meet your needs, to cover your shame, to speak to your guilt with love and forgiveness and acceptance, to take away your fears by his own promise of faithfulness to you, to love you so that you can do the same for your near one. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you today as as those who need your love. Father, who need your acceptance. Who need you to cover us, to cover our shame. Father, we come to you as those who struggle to love our own near one. Whether married or unmarried. Father, we come to you as those who need your love. And those who, as we come to your table, see a reminder of your love. Father, speak to us that it may overflow in our relationship with our near one. Amen.